0: If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Joshua 13 and 14. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way through this Old Testament book of Joshua. Uh, many of you have mentioned to me over the last several months that uh, this has been such an encouragement, uh, timely series for us, and, and I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, today, I think we'll find more encouragement uh, from, this, from this letter. By the way, Jordan, I noticed you didn't get the memo on the uh, staff uniform today. The rest of us all have on the khaki-colored pants, but uh, not you, so we'll send that memo out again. I know some of you notice those things purely by accident. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapters of 13 and 14, somewhat because there are lots of names here that I don't know how to pronounce. But I will uh, I'll draw from... Uh, These two chapters, things that I believe will be helpful to us. But I am going to read the first six verses, so please listen as I read a portion of God's Word. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ascalonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite to the south. All the land of the Canaanite in Mira that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Afek to the border of the Amorite in the land of the Gibeonite, and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as (laughs) Misrathathamayam all the Sidonians I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel only allotted to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. So here in these two chapters we find Joshua at uh, at that stage where the Bible here says there he is advanced in age, very politically correct way to say it. Uh, some old translations say he was stricken with age. That's a funny way to say it as well. The age strikes you. Yes. But he's an old man, and he's lived a full life. He lived a long life. He has lived a glorious life. The Lord has used him in significant ways, but his days are drawing near. And as it says there in verse 1, the job's not done. There is much land to be conquered for the nation of Israel. And Joshua is not the one who is going to lead Israel into the complete fulfillment of the promise. And at this point, God says, as you're getting old here, Joshua, and your days are are coming to an end, here I'm going to give you a very important assignment. I want you to allot all the properties to these 12 tribes. And then we read these hard... Names, some of them that I read to you, and that goes on in chapter 13, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Next week we're going to cover chapters 15 through 20 in one sermon. And over and over again it says God allotted to this tribe this area, and he allotted to this tribe this area, and to this tribe the lot fell this area. And for us, we think, okay, I don't know anything. I can't, I can't even say those names. I don't know those peoples, those places anymore. And it's, it's ancient history. And those places aren't even called those things anymore. And, okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and you're reading through the Bible plan. You skip through those, right? You skim through them pretty quickly. And that's fine. But it's significant what's happening here. While there are still enemies in all of these territories to be driven out, God says, here, tribe of Dan, here's the area that you get. Now, put yourself in the place of these Israelites. There are still people there. There's still work to be done. You still have to go in and take the land, but I'm assigning it to you. How much encouragement would that be to these groups? Let me me illustrate this way. Suppose in the last year or so, you really had a heart for evangelism and you decided, I really need to reach out to my neighbors. And so you're praying, Lord, I want to do this. I'm a little fearful and a little scared, but I want to do this. I want to preach the gospel. And somebody comes knocking on your door and says, hey, I heard you're a Christian. I want to be a Christian too. Tell me about Jesus. Like, what? All right. And you lead this person to Christ. you think, go, I got this. This is easy. This is good. So then you go knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. And there's a little push, a little resistance, but a few months later... This person comes to faith in Christ. You bring them here. We baptize them. Woohoo! things are great. And you're thinking, all right, I can do this. And then the Lord shows up and says, in five years, your entire neighborhood is going to be converted. Or your apartment complex or whatever, whatever your situation is. All of your neighbors within the next five years, every one of them is going to come to Christ. How exciting would that be? What would it change about your behavior? You'd be knocking on doors. You'd be inviting people over to your house. You'd be having barbecues out front. Hey, invite everybody because you know God has promised within five years every single one of these people are going to go to faith. And you wouldn't be discouraged. You would press in. You'd talk, and they would resist you at first. They'd think, oh, you're some right-wing wacko, and say, yep, yep, I knew you'd think that, but in five years, right? And then maybe you would raise up a real opposition and a bunch of your neighbors would start picketing and they would egg your house. They'd be telling you all kinds of stuff. You are this this crazy maniac. And and that would test your resolve. That would test your faith. You would be going back and saying, wait, did I really hear the Lord say? But if you were convinced he said, I'm going to give this whole neighborhood to you, you'd say, all right, I don't care what kind of opposition they're mounting. The Lord has promised that I get the whole neighborhood for Jesus. And you would withstand that opposition and you would wait and wait in faith, right? That's what we do when God makes promises and we believe him. So imagine for these Israelites, God said, that's your territory, Judah, go get it. The courage they would have to go fight their enemies. The Bible uses this all the time to give us hope. The perseverance that Dwight was just praying about. Do you realize the Bible says, we get it all, the meek will do what? Inherit the what? How much of the earth? The meek will inherit the earth. If you're a Christian, you're in that category of meek. The earth belongs to us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That. Put it up. Uh Uh-oh. Technical difficulties? Oh, there it is. So then... Let no one of you boast in men. This is a part of a passage where Paul is rebuking the church because they are choosing sides. One guy is saying, "Hey, I'm a follower of Paul." Another guy says, "I'm a follower of Apollos." Another guy says, "I'm a follower of Cephas." That's Peter. Another says, "You know." And, and Paul's really taking the task for dividing up by following these men. And as he kind of concludes this argument, he says, "Let no one boast in men. Why? For all things belong to you." Why are you dealing with petty alliances and allegiances when the entire universe belongs to you? It's yours. Next verse. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. It's yours. It's ours. It's a done deal. We are not living yet. We're not in the full realized fulfillment of the promise. But it's just a matter of time. When he comes back, it's all ours. The last verse of this section, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. The reason it's all ours is because God has given it to Jesus and we are co-heirs with Jesus of everything. Well, what has Jesus inherited? The, the whole earth, right? Psalm 2, he said, the, the, the father says, ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. And God has given the nations as his inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ of everything. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away, but it's okay. I'm going away to do what? To prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare one for you. And then I'm going to come back and take you to that place. Imagine if Jesus showed up said, Dennis, you get Briargate when I come back. It's yours. Steve, you're already in Briargate, so I'm going to send you to Pueblo. <laughs> Dwight, you get Cheyenne Mountain area. You get Fort Carson. You get Peyton. What if he said you, and he named you by name, he said, here's the area that when I come back, it is all yours, how awesome would that be? How much hope would that produce in you, perseverance, doing what God has called you to do, knowing he has a place assigned to you, that someday he's going to come and he's going to give it to you. It's going to be a time and a place when he eliminates all opposition, all hostility, all disappointment. It's going to be glorious and wonderful and perfect. And one little slice of it is yours. Forever and ever and ever. How much courage would that give you? Well, that's what God's doing for Israel. Yes, they have hard battles ahead. Yes, there's much opposition ahead of them. But he's saying, that area over there, that's yours. you got to go get it. Dwight was praying, he mentioned the, uh, the Equality Act. That's not a good act. We need to be praying against it. We need to do need to do all the things that he said. We need to hope and pray and seek that the Senate will not pass it. It will, it will bring persecution to the church, I believe. We don't like that. We don't want that. We shouldn't invite that. People sometimes say, you know, persecution is good for the church. We out the good and the bad and all that. Yeah, that sounds good when you're not being persecuted. Don't pray for persecution. Uh, you, you pray as the Lord leads you, but I don't really want it. But what I do know is regardless of what God's plan for us is, if he brings persecution, he will see us through it, as Dwight mentioned, and someday he will eliminate all of it and all of it and bring us into the promised land. And he will judge those who persecute us. That's for sure. What happens between now and then, we don't know. But we need to take courage to stand for truth. And to proclaim to a lost world what Jesus requires, what offends him to remind them they will someday stand before King Jesus and give an account for their actions. We need to do that no matter what the opposition brings. And we can do that if our eyes are fixed on this this place that God has said, that's going to be yours someday. So So how do we do that? What do we do? We hold fast to the end. We trust him. We obey him. Come what may until the end. In chapter 14, we get a fantastic illustration of this in this man, Caleb. Now before we look at Joshua 14 and Caleb's story there, I want to go back and pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So Deuteronomy, Moses is still alive and the Israelites are right at the edge of the promised land the first time. God has delivered them from Egypt, he's performed his miracles, the ten plagues, he led them through the Red Sea, the amazing display of his power in parting the Red Sea, and here they are ready to enter the promised land. And the twelve spies are sent into the land to, to see what kind of land it is. And they come back with huge branches of fruit. And they say, yes, it is everything God promised. It is the land of milk and honey. It's going to be great. Well, at least two of them said that. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, it's going to be great. Let's go. The other ten said, yeah, it's great as far as prosperity goes. But the, the people who live there are big and powerful and strong. They have advanced weaponry. We can't go in there. They'll kill us. They'll destroy us. You remember how God responded? He was furious at their lack of faith. He says, well, you're not going in there to trust your own strength. I'm the God who just parted the Red Sea. You think I can't handle these people? He was furious. Verse 34 of chapter 1 says, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath. Here's what his oath was. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers. You won't trust me? You think those... Nations are stronger than me, almighty God? Fine. Not one of you will enter the promised land. He said all of the men fighting age and older, so everyone over 20 is going to die and not into the promised land. When this happened, Caleb was 40 years old. He's in the prime of his life. And he's eager. And he's faithful. And he's trusting. And he's part of a wicked, unbelieving generation who's experiencing the condemnation of God. And for the next 40 years, Caleb, along with the people of Israel, wander around aimlessly in a desert. Can you imagine? Through no fault of his, he was faithful. He trusted God. He was doing the right thing. And yet because of their wickedness, he has to spend the next 40 years wondering if he's going to be able to drink anything or if he's going to die of thirst. Coming up against nations now and then and wondering, are we going to be delivered here? And watching all of his peers die. What's remarkable to me is we don't hear any hint of bitterness in Caleb. He never responds in anger against God saying, hey, I, I why why do I have to suffer this? I was faithful. Why do I have to be put in with this lot? He doesn't even show bitterness to his countrymen who are the ones that cost him 40 years of his life. He remains true. He may, remains faithful. He keeps doing what he's supposed to do. 45 years later, they come back to the edge of the promised land. God says, I'm going to give it to you now because all that generation is dead. New generation. So Joshua and Caleb, you realize, are at least 20 years older than everybody else because they're the only two of that generation that lasted. Now they're ready to take the land. And he hears Joshua say, okay, gather around, Israelites. I'm going to start distributing the land. And and Caleb remembers what God promised. I stopped, if you noticed. In verse 35, God says, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to your fathers, except, verse 36, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him... And to his sons, I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he followed the Lord fully. So for 40 years, Caleb remembers that promise. He's out in the middle of the the wilderness, in the middle of the desert, and he's desperate for a drink. But he knows he's going to make it because God promised you We'll have that territory someday. And he puts up with all the nonsense, all the wickedness, all the stuff going on among his people, knowing I'm going to live because God has promised I get that section where I put my feet. And he hears Joshua distributing the land and he shows up. Back to Joshua 14. And he says, I'm going to stake my claim now. Joshua 14, verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever. Because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. These 45 years. The time the Lord spoke this word to Moses when the Israelites walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I love this. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. It seems like we age differently. Expect to get a few more amens there. right. Uh, Joshua, who was apparently around the same age as Caleb, maybe a little bit older, his time is winding down. He's, He's just about done. Caleb says, not me. I'm strong. I'm as strong as I was in my 40s. I'm ready to go to war. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to take that land. I can do this. Verse 12, now then. Give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there. Remember who the Anakim were? These were giants. The Nephilim were part of the sons of Anak. Very mysterious group. The sons of God, which may represent angels, intermarried with the sons of men and produced these Big, strong, powerful warriors. Think Goliath. And these were the ones that the Jews were afraid of the first time. The sons of Anak are there. We can't go in there. Caleb at 85 years old said, I want that hill because I want to take out the sons of Anak. Love that. Hope I have that courage when I'm 85. Hope you do too. With the great fortified cities, they're strong cities. They've got big, powerful walls. They've got horses and chariots. They've got advanced weaponry. They're strong. I want it because the Lord has told me it's mine. You see, Caleb is not trusting in himself. He's not even trusting in his vigor at 85. He's not saying, I can do this because I'm strong. He's saying, I can do this if the Lord is with me. And the Lord promised me that hill. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Uh, It's not really a perhaps in the sense that I may or may not. It's just a figure of speech saying... If the Lord gives it to me, which I'm convinced he will because he promised it to me, at my age, even with my little tribe, we're going to take them. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunah, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunah the Kenizzite, until this day. Because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. What faith. Do we have that kind of faith? Now, I know God hasn't promised us the same kind of tangible things that he promised these people. He's not come to me and showed up and said, hey, I'm going to give you your entire neighborhood in five years. Uh, it would be great if he did But he hasn't said that. He's promised us the earth. He's promised us that someday in the new heavens and new earth, we have complete victory. What we don't know is what's the intervening period, what's now? Is he going to bring great oppression upon the people of God now? Maybe, maybe here in the U.S., The more stories we hear about what's going on in the underground church in China, makes you wonder if that's not going to be the next great bastion of Christianity. Wouldn't that be something? What if 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, we are the ones in hiding and China becomes this amazing Christian nation. Do you think God can't do that? Oh, ye of little faith. Again, I don't know what he's going to do, but can he do that? Of course. Can he keep America from continuing down the slide into the pit? Of course he can. Of course he can. Don't give up. Dwight prayed for revival. Can God answer that prayer? I don't know what he's going to do, and neither do you. Or if you do, would you please come tell me? But I know that he can do this. And he has promised us that the gospel will bear fruit. That his kingdom will grow. That his peace will increase. He's promised us those things. And so we have to stand firm in the truth and preach the truth. As long as we're in the kingdom, uh, in among the kingdom of darkness, there will be opposition. The enemy is still alive and well. He's got his schemes. He's got his plots. He is firing away, and we are told what to do with that, right? We put on the armor. We put on the helmet and the breastplate. We put on the belt and the shoes, and what is the command in Ephesians 6 with that armor? Stand. Firm as the arrows come flying in from the enemy. But it's not only a defensive posture. Go storm the gates of darkness because the gates of Hades will not prevail against the building of Jesus' church. That imagery, the gate there is a defensive gate. It's the city around, uh, it's the wall around the city. So the kingdom of darkness has its walls around it and we are told Go into the kingdom of darkness with the truth and we're going to win the battle. Because those gates can't handle the sword of the spirit and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're sending a family away today without going public. I'm not supposed to say it out loud so I won't because they're going to a dangerous place. But they know who they are. You know who they are do look at them. Some of you are looking at them. Got people live streaming here. They might zoom in, get the back of their heads, and track them down. Some of you are still looking at them. What are you doing? But they're going into a tough place. And we have many other missionaries that are in really hard places. We heard about them last week in the missions conference. They go in faith. Because they go in the power of the Spirit of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they can go knowing that even if they lose their lives, they win their lives. And in the meantime, God will use them to preach his truth. Well, we are all missionaries. We all live among the kingdom of darkness. We have to stand firm. Be like Caleb, fully. Fully trusting the Lord, not complaining, not being sidetracked, not cowering, not as those who retreat. Fully trusting the Lord, knowing at the end of all of this, we win. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to endure. But it's worth it. I'm going to close with a passage from Book of Hebrews. We call chapter 11 the Hall of Faith. As the writer here gives us this long list of Old Testament saints who stayed the course, who, who were like Caleb. But I want to back up and pick up in chapter 10 to get into the first couple of verses of chapter 11. These were Christians who because of the opposition and persecution of Jews were in peril of abandoning the faith to go back to Judaism. And the writer all the way along has been calling them to stay the course, stick to the gospel of Jesus. Verse 32, but remember the former days... When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. We're all going to get that. We're all going to suffer. When you stand for truth, when you point people toward righteousness, when you point out sin, there are people who are going to oppose you. People who are going to falsely accuse you. People who don't want to hear the truth and they're going to justify in their minds what they're doing. And if they have any power with the state, they're going to bring the power of the state. You endure these sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. In that day, if you went to care for prisoners, which you needed to do because they would starve to death. The only way they could be fed is if somebody brought them food. So if you went and took food to a Christian, everybody knew, oh, you must be a Christian too. And they would hunt you down and sometimes destroy your property. And the the writer here is reminding them, you endured that persecution. Why? Because you knew you had a better and lasting possession coming someday. And you thought giving up your temporary enjoyment of things now was not worth trading eternal life. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. We haven't received the promise yet. I mean, we've received, the speaking of the promise, we've not received the fulfillment of the promise. That comes after we endure. Then he quotes the Old Testament. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. We saw this with Caleb, right? Caleb didn't shrink back and God was pleased. The other 10, they shrunk back and God says, I am angry with you. We must not shrink back even if the Equality Act passes. High school students, college students, listen to me. This thing passes... There will be people and ramifications in your schools. 14-year-old is not exempt from this command. You stand firm on the truth. Even Christian schools are not exempt from pressures to cave. We are not of those who shrink back. That's what he says, verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of our soul. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen we have the promise we don't see the fulfillment yet we're hoping in it not in the american sense of hope remember the american sense of hope is i hope the rockies win the world series this year it's a mere wish it's a it's a waste of words Biblical hope is a certain expectation, like the Cardinals winning the World Series this year. In the Bible, a hope is a sure thing, it just hasn't happened yet. For those of you who don't know, I'm from St. Louis originally. It's a certain thing, it just hasn't happened yet. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you believe you are going to live forever with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth? If so, you do not shrink back when opposition comes. Stand. And like Caleb, after we have persevered through the fight... The Lord will come back and say, now, here's your territory. It's yours. Enter into your rest forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, this takes courage. It's easy to say this wor- these words. It's easy for me to preach this to people who believe it and who agree. But we are not naive or foolish to think that it's always so simple as this. We need courage. We need boldness. We need, like Jesus, our Lord, to stand in the face of false accusations, lies, people who may call themselves our friends, who are deceived. Turn on us, people who don't claim to be our friends, who come against us, even in the face of those who hold the sword, who have the power of bringing harm to us and our children, our properties, Lord, would we have the faith, the assurance of that which we hope in, to stand firm.